And it's great to be coming to the end of our series on 1 Thessalonians this morning. And let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless it to us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. We pray that as we think about it together, we thankful for the blessing of studying it and especially to work through a letter, especially this letter that's been so encouraging and helpful. We ask you to guide us now as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once told a story of make-believe country where the only inhabitants were ducks. One Sunday morning, all the ducks went to church. They waddled down the aisle, they got into their pews and they squatted. The duck minister took his place behind the pulpit. He opened the duck Bible and he read, Ducks, you have wings and with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky, use your wings. All the ducks yelled, Amen. And then they waddled home. The story is a reminder to me that when we come to the scriptures, that ultimately our coming is not so that we better be better educated, although that's important. It's that we might be transformed by his word and his spirit to become what we ought to be. Learning is not our goal. The purpose is not information. The greater purpose is transformation. The truth will make us free and in doing so is supposed to make us more and more like Christ. Sometimes non-Christians have a better grasp on this than we do. They might not know much about theology and they might be unable to pinpoint what they think is wrong with theology but they will express their disappointment when believers lie when they fail to pay their bills, when they cheat on their taxes, when they don't keep their word, when they freeload shamelessly or abandon their husbands or their wives. They recognise there is something wrong with the practice of that kind of Christianity. They know sometimes better than believers do that believers bear the image of Christ. So we ought to act as Jesus acted. That's why the Apostle Paul so often puts to use the theology he develops in the earlier parts of his letters to demonstrate how it works out in daily living and into life. Every one of his letters ends with pointed practical applications of the truth and that's certainly the case with our text this morning from 1 Thessalonians these verses 12 to 28 of chapter 5, where the Apostle helps the Thessalonians understand how the Gospel ought to shape and affect every area of our life and particularly the four areas in which Paul tells us this morning. How we are to live as we wait for the return of the Lord. Right theology that leads to right living so that we might not be better educated but that we might also be not like the ducks who heard but were not transformed by what they heard. 
There are four various areas that Paul wants to address. The first is the way we are to respect our leaders in verses 12 to 15. The text begins, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work, live in peace with each other. In verse 12, the phrase, who are over you, literally means to stand in front of you. It would be better rendered, those who are in front of you or ahead of you. But the expression over you could also give a false impression. Now, Christian leadership has nothing to do with being over people, lording it over them or telling them what to do. On the contrary, a leadership, Christian leadership, in the church is a position of being under you, of serving. It's about loving and serving others and modelling the truth as it is seen in Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to James and John when they asked if he could, they could sit at his left and right hand in his coming kingdom? Uh, Jesus had to remind them that in his kingdom, if they wanted to be first, they had to be last. Leaders had to be slaves of all, he said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We always look to Jesus for the model of leadership. He did not go around bossing people as if he was over them and demanding they do what he said. His was a leadership of servanthood. He told his disciples that in the world, People think about leadership in terms of how many subordinates they have under them, but it was not to be so among them. They must think in terms of being under those they serve. In fact, autocratic, self-centred leadership is condemned in the New Testament. The person of Diotrephes, of whom John says he loves to be first. Paul uses the wonderful figure in another letter, 1 Corinthians 4, describing how to think of Christian leaders. Let a man regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word for servants is not Paul's usual term there. It literally means under rowers. That is, the slaves who pulled the oars in the ancient seagoing vessels. A slave labour was that which kept the galleys going. In Paul's metaphor, leaders who make the galleys go, so to speak, are merely under rowers. They are part of the crew. They are seated below the decks in the lower seats. They're pulling on their oars like everyone else, but they don't set the course. Christian leaders don't set the course. That's the captain's job. It's his task to determine the heading and the call of the stroke. And the word respect in verse 12 is really to know. When it says respect your leaders, it means to know them. Leaders are ordinary people. Leaders have the same flaws and problems as others. In marriages, in families, in personal living. And yet they're called to an extraordinary task... And that extraordinary task, as Paul says, is summarised as a steward in relation to the task of the gospel. And the word picture of a steward 
brings to mind a butler whose job is to rummage around the pantry and bring out the bread and the wine for the family meals. And so a Christian leader is going into the pantry of God and bringing out the goodies of his word upon which others can feed. While a multitude of voices may claim that the world has what we need, the work of Christian leaders is to impart the truth that the word of God has what we need as they instruct the flock on how to live lives pleasing to him. And Paul adds here, that's hard work. And we remember that it goes both ways. The work may be all the more harder if the flock fail to encourage and support the under-shepherd and if they fail to do what the Apostle bids in verse 13, live in peace with each other. Secondly, in verses 14 to 15, Paul addresses the way we are to respond to one another, giving commands that we are addressed to everyone in the church, not just upward-looking but sideways-looking, not just up at the leadership but sideways to one another. The first command is to correct wrong, admonish the unruly. The unruly in Thessalonica probably referred to those who had quit their jobs and were sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. When someone's out of line, he's not to be criticised, but he's to be gently reproved, to be brought back into line. If you see someone violating scripture, do something about it, but do it in love. Help them get back into line. The second command is made of two parts. Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted, those who are timid, those who are anxious, those who are intimidated, those who may be overwhelmed by what life brings. He says, help the weak. That is, those who are guilty, those who feel the weight of their past sin, those who feel inadequate, those who feel insecure in life. Help them, says Paul. Actually, the word is cleave. And cleave can have two meanings, a bring together or pull apart, obviously it's the meaning bring together. Hold on to them. Bring them together. Put your arm around them. Don't leave them in their weakness, but encourage and support them. We're all reminded that Christian life is a battle, that we all carry many wounds. We need to bandage one another's wounds and get one another on their feet walking again. We're all weak. We're all faint-hearted. We all fail in our faith. We all feel crushed by the demands of life. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed just getting out of bed, trying to be a parent, trying to make marriage work, trying to get through the day. We need help. We need to help each other. And the third part of this section is we need to be patient with all men. The word patient is a Greek word which has the meaning long before we get heated. Sometimes we refer to someone they have a short fuse. Well, this is the opposite. We should not give up on each other. We are to do that as Paul teaches. See that no one repays one another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all. 
Arguments begin when someone says something unkind or, un, or harsh and that's responded to in kind and you know what happens. Before long a lot of damage can be done and it can be hard to remember what even started the fight. Paul says avoid this by being patient with one another, patient with all. Third, the Apostle addresses the way we are to react to our circumstances in verses 16 to 18. They contain for us three little commands that we surely we could all remember and commit to memory so easily because in them the Apostle gives us a succinct and helpful summary of the way we should always respond to whatever comes our way. You know the verses. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. Let's think on them quickly. Rejoice always. Well, we could take it at this level. Be cheerful. Uh, don't life, don't get, let life get you down. Don't be glum and sour about your position. Don't be resentful and bitter because life has dealt you a blow. It's God who determines the events of your lives, whether good or bad, and he will use all the events of your lives, whether good or bad, to make you what you ought to be and enable you to continue to serve him. That's why James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Or J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends. God is working to make you the kind of person that he wants you to be and conform you to the image of Christ. Someone has said that God wants to squeeze you like a grape to make sweet wine. The pressure we experience is the fingers of God to effect that purpose upon us. So rejoice. Let the process continue. Don't fight back. Don't be resentful. Allow the suffering to complete its good work in you. And then he adds, pray without ceasing. Uh, That's how we draw on the resources of God, by maintaining a close relationship with him. Pray about everything. Pray wherever you go. We ought to have protracted times of prayer where we set aside time to pray often, alone, But we can have times when we pray very quickly on the go. Arrow prayers. For those times comes an attitude of praying in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Describing his understanding of this verse, Stonewall Jackson, who was once United States General of their civil army, said, I never seal a letter without putting a word of prayer under the seal. I never receive a dispatch from the post without a brief sending of my thoughts upward. I never meet my troops without a moment's petition on those who go out and those who come in. Everything calls me to prayer. Then, says the Apostle, in everything give thanks. Note that it does not say, for everything give thanks. For there are clearly some circumstances in which giving thanks for a tragedy or death or disease may well come across somewhat strange to the watching world. 
But it does say, in everything give thanks. In everything. And we do that because God is in everything. All things come from him. All things are made by him. And we can be thankful in every circumstance. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We tend to think of God's will in terms of great activities that he has planned for us. Paul says God's will involves a quiet response of thankfulness in every circumstance, acknowledging in that way that all we face is under his mighty and wonderful hand. Fourthly, in verses 19 to 22, the Apostle talks about the way we are to receive the word of God. The New Testament was not yet written when Paul penned these words. Actually, 1 Thessalonians was the first or second book of the New Testament to be written. In the interim, there were prophets in the early church who received direct revelation from God. 1 Corinthians 14 describes this. People would be seated in a meeting like this and a word of revelation would come to a prophet who would stand up and proclaim God's word to the congregation. Here Paul says, don't quench the spirit. When the prophets are announcing God's word, listen to what they have to say, but don't be gullible or naive. Attest the spirits to see if they are true. Examine the teaching to see if it's consistent with the rest of the revelation of the word of God. We remember that in Corinth, others had gifts of discernment. They could test a prophet's words. Today we have the written word. But Paul would still tell us, do not quench the spirit. When and if the Holy Spirit prompts us to consider a text of scripture that we've read or heard or had preached to us, we should not resist being instructed by whatever means God has appointed for us. This means that Paul says, what Paul says we must also do, test the spirits. When you hear the word preached, whether it's from this pulpit or on the radio or on the television, don't just take that pastor's word for it. Check it out for yourself. Examine to see if what is said is the truth. See, the preacher's task is to say what the apostles have said, who say what Jesus has said. If they're not doing that, then we're not holding to the truth and we will be therefore submitting ourselves to error. What do these things mean for us this morning as we finish up the letter? And how are we going to be any better at having a faith that functions? to the point that we're not like the ducks we heard of earlier. All talk, but no wings. Right theology, but not getting off the ground. Well, have you noticed that the Apostle has mentioned Jesus in relation to his church in a greater degree in this closing part of the letter? Could you glean from that that all the Apostle teaches here is only possible by the grace of God and through the knowledge of our Saviour. The only way we can become what we ought to be and not just ducks that waddle home is by having a living, vital, fruitful connection with God through Jesus. Note here that everything that Paul tells us should be in our lives 
was evident in Jesus' life. He was the one who was at peace with his enemies. He was the one who never repaid evil for evil. He was the one who rejoiced always, even when enduring a lawless trial, even for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was the one who was always giving thanks. He was the one who was always rejoicing. He was the one who was always praying. Always the one setting the example for his people. And the reason that Paul tells us to be like Jesus is because that's what God wants us to be like or who God wants us to be like. He's the pattern and the model that we're to follow. And how are we to fulfil that? How do we get to be like Jesus? If you look at verse 28, you'll see that Paul ends with some requests. A request, pray for us. There's a parting greeting. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There's a parting charge. Hear the word of God read publicly to you all. And there's a parting blessing. An apostolic benediction. The grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul used that benediction in almost every letter that he wrote. It's his favourite benediction. But notice this. Turn back to verse 1 of chapter 1. How does the verse begin? How does Paul begin the letter? Grace to you and peace. And how does he end the letter? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. He begins with grace and he ends with grace. Why? Because grace is the blessing that we need. Grace is not just something we need at the beginning of the Christian life so that we're forgiven for our sins and find salvation. It's something we need to live the Christian life. What is grace? Grace is God's gift to us in Christ, God's free gift. That in Christ... He lived a life for us that we couldn't live. That in Christ he died a death for us that he didn't deserve so that we might receive a forgiveness for which we did not pay and an eternal fellowship with him that's freely of his own offer and all at his expense freely given. Grace, God's grace is both forgiveness and power. And throughout this letter, Paul has been expressing that our growth in the Lord, our maturity in faith, our sanctification in holiness, our readiness for his coming is all dependent upon the grace of God at work in us. And so he concludes, grace to you. He calls us back to the gospel John Stott says here, if a local church is to become a gospel church, it must not only receive the gospel and pass it on, but also embody the gospel in a community life of mutual love. Nothing but the grace of Christ can accomplish this amongst his people. And so Paul's last word, grace to you because that's what we need. And that's my prayer too, for all of us, as we conclude 
this letter, this very personal letter. May you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be multiplied to you so that you might be and might always be faithful to him who called you in these days, in these last days, before he comes again. Remembering these words of Paul as he looked forward to his own end, his own translation into heaven, which he said was for him and for all who have loved his appearing. Will you pray that we might all have a faith that functions? Looking back to the great saving act of God in Christ, looking around at one another, encouraging each other all the more as we see the day approaching, looking ahead as this little letter does to see the one who is coming back for us so that we might be with him forever. That's our hope. That's what the scriptures promise and it's fitting that the book which began with grace finishes with grace, grace from start to finish, grace amazing, it's what we need, it's what will lead us home and it will prepare us for the day we wait and pray for when he comes for and with his saints. So may grace equip you always to be ready for the salvation that is to appear when he comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come with thankful hearts to you today, we come acknowledging our own weakness, our own frailty, our own need of one another, Thank you that you've placed us within the context of other believers. Other believers who also struggle with life as it is, with doing the very things that we're called to in these verses, even such simple things as pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Sometimes these are even too hard for us. But we thank you that you give us grace that underpins everything. Grace that saves and grace that keeps. And grace that causes us to lean heavily upon you and find that you are always an ever-present help. So continue your work among us, we pray. Make us more like Christ our Saviour. As we thank you together, for that amazing grace you've given us in Christ, freely, wonderfully and without reserve. Pray for each other now that we all might hear your word and respond to it with thankful hearts. We pray that we may not quench the spirit, but listen carefully and do everything we can according to that which you have given us, to do what we ought in Christ. And lift our heads high and knowing that our day of salvation is nearer and nearer, that Christ is coming and we will rejoice forever knowing that even after 10,000 years we will have only just begun. So keep us now as we pray these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen.